got a Bible, if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 1 Peter 1, and let's pray and, and open up the word. Uh, Father, we are here to, to give you glory today for who you are and all you've done uh, for us in Christ. We're here gathered to say that, that though it seems small now and though it seems like it's dysfunctional now, we are part of your kingdom, uh, your kingdom that's going to come, and, and you are going to come and make all things new. And, and we want to be holy people who do your will, who, who follow you and, and do on earth as it is in heaven, but we need you for that. We need you to stoke our hopes in Jesus today. We need you to free us from our sin, to, to help us to forgive, to compel us to live with high regard for you and all you've done, and that's going to take a work of your spirit. And so we pray, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we've been good enough for it this week, but because you're a gracious God, uh, we pray that today you would speak to us, that you give us the gift of faith and send us out of here following you, believing in you, having our burdens lifted by Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we read today's text to start, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now the most important word in that, that whole passage is probably the first word in verse 13. He, he starts with the word therefore. And so it's important to realize that what Peter is building here, what he's about to teach us here, all builds on what he had said in the previous verses. In fact, he spent verses 3 through 12 of this chapter, which is all one sentence in the original Greek, celebrating Jesus and all that God has done for us in him. So back in verse 3, he celebrated the fact that according to his mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 4, he celebrated the fact that he's given Christians an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we have something that, that we can't lose waiting for us. In verses 6 and 7, he celebrated the fact that even our trials and tribulations here work for our good and will result in the honor and the glory of Jesus in the end. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 12, he celebrated the fact that the prophets of old and even the angels would have loved to have what we have and see what we have in Christ. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what we have in Jesus is so good that angels would pay good money for front row seats to be able to see the things that we have, to see the story of salvation unfold that, that we have those front row seats for. 
and so Peter, who, who spent time with Jesus, who lived alongside Jesus for three years in the flesh and has now spent a lifetime walking with Jesus, says it's not a small thing to know Jesus. This is a big deal. It's an enormous privilege for Christians to have been forgiven and accepted by God and to, to know God in Christ. And now he begins this next sentence in verse 13 with therefore. He's about to give us the first commands in this book, but everything that he's gonna tell us to do flows from the thing that he's already told us. He's already told us about the gospel and there are an awful lot of therefores that get built on top of that. He unpacked the wonders of God's salvation and he's now calling us to a necessary response to those blessings that we've received. So Peter wants us to know that belief always flows into life. Just like James says, faith without works is dead. He knows that if we really believe something, we're going to act accordingly. If you want to say it all, all nerdy, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. The, the right belief, right truths lead to right practice if we really believe them. So believing the truths of the gospel leads to living a very different life. And so Peter's goal in writing to us about the gospel is first that we would believe it and be forgiven and have our burdens lifted and know God in Christ and be amazed at the amazing thing that God's done for us. And then from there, that we'd begin to live out the implications of that belief. Those beliefs have to change our lives and they have to change the, the cultures of our homes and our church if we hold to those things. So a lot of the rest of this book will be, be telling us what kind of people we're called to be in light of the gospel that we've come to believe. So as you hear commands, just remember, this isn't a disconnected list of rules, but this is going to be an unpacking of all the implications of gospel belief, which is so needed for us. Because we're really good at compartmentalizing our lives, where we add faith to our lives, but then we kind of hermetically seal it off so that it doesn't really have any bearing on the other parts of our lives. So we'll call ourselves Christians, we'll get baptized to announce it, but then the faith has very little effect on a number of areas in our lives. And Peter's working against that. He's gonna spend these next chapters drawing out the reality that our, our faith has to affect our hopes, our fears, our conduct, our sex lives, our church lives, how we relate to the government, how we relate to our spouses, how we go through suffering and hard times, how we view our jobs, how we live in relationship to one another, all of those things have to be affected by gospel belief. So it's like the gospel has entered our lives and it's now going to spread its influence over every facet of our lives. It's going to kick out the former gods in all those areas, the former ultimates and the former hopes in every category. This is important because we tend to live sometimes with pr like practical polytheists where, where we have different parts of our lives all fenced off from one another and each part of our life seems to have a different God and a different set of laws and a different set of rules. So we have our Christian life where the ultimate is Jesus and, and I live to glorify him and that's the ultimate goal. But then I have my emotional life and sometimes we can treat it like there's a different ultimate goal over there. Um, that the, the ultimate goal there is to exalt myself. And then over here, we might have our financial life. And, and it's okay if the ultimate goal over there is just a greedy one, that, that the highest good is for me to get as much stuff as I can. And we can be very divided people. But the gospel comes and integrates us. It calls us to bring all of our life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it calls us to refuse to believe that there's any part of our life that is disconnected from the other parts or any part of our life that doesn't belong to Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. St. Augustine said, either Christ is everything to us or he's nothing to us. 
So it's like our lives are a house that Jesus moves into, and then he just starts painting every room in gospel colors. He just starts replacing all the furniture, rearranging everything, because the whole thing is his, and little by little, he conforms us to his will. So believing the gospel, becoming a Christian, is a life-altering, reality-altering, community-altering thing. It's not just about getting a spiritual feeling that we maintain sometimes. It's not just about getting like a Christian mood that we can sometimes get in, and then when we're not in that mood, we don't call ourselves Christians anymore. Believing the gospel changes everything. And, and if you're new to this, th that can sound really daunting and really overwhelming. But be encouraged, because none of us start out fully grasping all the implications of, of coming to know Jesus. The whole Christian life is a life of learning more of Christ, learning more how the gospel affects every area of our lives, integrating all of life into a whole without disconnected parts, having Jesus rule and reign over all those parts, repenting as we go, admitting we were wrong as we go, growing as we go, and finding all kinds of grace under the patient leadership of God. And so I hope that by the end of our study of First Peter, that we'll see clearly the areas of our lives that have still been unaffected by the gospel, the areas where we need to repent, the things we need to confess to God and to one another, because he's a God of grace who gives us far better than we deserve, and we'll have our living hope renewed and, and restored by him. So in light of what God has done for us in Christ, Peter says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So still before he gives us any commands, he tells us what our posture needs to be. And this is that we have to have a posture of an active mind. That we have to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. And if you have the old King James Version, it says that we need to gird up the loins of our minds. And what that was referring to is that, that back in the day, guys would wear long flowing robes. And you guys know that when you try to run in your long flowing robe, that can be difficult and it can, can hinder your running. And so before they would run, like they were about to get into battle or something like that, they would take the bottom of their robe and they would tuck it up in the belt. And that would liberate their legs so that they could run, so that they could be active. And so when he says to us, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your minds for action, he's saying, get ready. Like, this is about an active thing I'm going to be giving you to do. Um, we might say in our day, like, roll up your sleeves, roll up the sleeves of your mind. There's real mental work to be done in light of the fact that we've become Christians. So he says, be ready for that. Be ready for action, be ready for some work. And then he says, be sober-minded or be alert. And sober is the opposite of drunk. And so we should have minds that are not actually drunk and also minds that aren't drunk-seeming, where they're not sleepy, they're not lethargic, they're, they're focused. We're going to need that. There's some work for our minds to do if we're going to live out the implications of the gospel. So he says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. We're going to need to energetically focus on the major tasks of the Christian life. And then the first major task that he gives us to do is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So in light of all that God's done for us in Jesus, we spend our lives as Christians actively working to set our hope fully on grace. He says, here's your task. Set your hope on the grace that's coming to you. We're supposed to use our minds to maintain an expectation of grace at the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, when we see him face to face, he says, look at all God's done for you. Look at how good he's been to you in the gospel. Look, look what he gave you in his son. Therefore, keep engaging your mind with the fact that all he has for you in the future is grace as well. 
that there's coming a day when Jesus finally returns or when we see him at our death, where as Christians, we don't expect wrath. We don't expect judgment. We don't expect life to just end or the lights to just turn out. We expect immeasurable grace for all eternity. And it's gonna take work to remind our hearts of that day by day. The reason is because we're going to be tempted to engage our hopes in smaller places. Sometimes we'll hope in the fact that our current trials, the things that we're going through right now, we hope that those things will will resolve. Or we hope that things will turn around and one day we'll, we'll be rich. We hope that things will turn around and one day we'll have the relationships that we want. That all of our diseases will be healed, that our pandemic will end soon, that our losses will be restored. And then when those hopes fail, we live our lives frustrated, we live our lives angry, we live our lives joyless. So he says, prepare your minds to actively, consistently stoke your hope in seeing Jesus face to face at the end and all the grace that'll be yours for all eternity. We also have to actively work at this because we're constantly told the lie that Christians aren't very useful if they set their hopes on heaven. That you can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. That that if you're too obsessed with Jesus and all that he'll do for you in eternity, you won't do any good here. But that's really just never been the case. Like, have you ever met anyone who, where you walk away from that and you say, the problem with that person is they just love Jesus too much. Like, that, that's never the problem. The, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. But we're also always told that's just a waste. That's just a fairy tale. That's just a fiction. And so we have to remind our hearts again and again that, no, that is our hope. Our hope is that, yes, some things will improve here. There will be changes here. We want to work to fix things that are broken here. But our ultimate hope is that we're going to see him face to face and have grace for all eternity. We also have to work at this because we're, we're really prone to tell ourselves that the future is bleak. And honestly, if all of our hopes are engaged here in this world, we will think that way. I mean, we look around at our culture, it seems like in, in large swaths it's rejecting Christianity. I know talking to many of you, many of you have adult children that have wandered from the faith. Maybe you look at government or the economy and you you see those things and it's like the the future doesn't look bright there. You look at your career and it seems like your career won't last. And we can despair because the future looks so dark in so many different ways. So we have to work at setting our hopes on the fact that there is grace for all eternity coming our way. That our ultimate future as Christians is ridiculously bright. And so when everything here feels like it's lost, when the future feels like it's really bleak, we remind ourselves of those truths in the previous verses, that God has sent his son to die for us, that he's chosen us, he's given all for us, we're headed for an eternity of grace, and because of that, we're the most hopeful people that there are. And we can have more hope than than a Bills fan in October because we have this sure thing that, that is coming our way. I mean, we're used to getting our hopes up now in the season and inevitably having them crushed in January if we, if we make it to January, but here's a sure thing. Like, this is one of those things where we won't be disappointed in the end. You can't put too much hope in Jesus. And this is also an encouragement for us that if we'll actively use our minds to dwell on the truths of the gospel, then often we can change how we feel about life and about the future and about circumstances. It's not usually in an instant, but the long-term use of our minds to stoke our hopes in the grace that's to come when Jesus is revealed will change the way that that we feel and the way that we think. 
So we're called to actively recenter our hopes on Jesus again and again. And next he says, in light of all that Jesus has done for us, we pursue holiness. Verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in verse 14, he says that we had former ignorance. And ignorance is not knowing. That that in the past, we didn't know Jesus. And not knowing Jesus created certain passions. We were ignorant of Jesus. We were ignorant of what he did. We didn't know his goodness. And that produced in us passions and desires. We didn't know the treasure that Jesus is. So we made everything else our treasure. And this inevitably happens. This always happens. where, Where when we don't have God at the top, something goes to the top. If Jesus isn't the most significant, something else inflates in its significance and takes his place and essentially becomes our religion. And you see it in sometimes how we engage with politics, where if our hopes are not set on Jesus, then we set them on the next most powerful thing that we can see. And pretty often that's that's politics. And so, so we'll live like that's our religion. And we don't have God as the one that we trust and don't question at the very top. We don't question our own political party. We just march in lockstep because that's the ultimate. We'll even take good things that are given to us by God, good gifts from God, and make those the main thing if Jesus isn't the main thing. We'll do it with things like sports. I'm a Bills fan. I haven't been to a Bills game in years because I, I work Sundays. But you can't go there and not notice the religious elements of gathering to, to watch that game. I mean, people are shouting, people are singing, they are raising their hands up high, raising their voices louder. Like, they're doing all of this to celebrate what's going on down on the field. And, and celebrating a football game is fun and a good thing, but so often it can become the main thing. And it can become a very religious thing. And we'll even encourage one another with, with words about what's going on on the field. I mean, how many of us will admit that we have text threads with our friends, texting them about what's going on right now in the Bills game so that week after week we can connect with one another around this glorious reality that we're two and one and probably going to win today again. And, and this is the, the, becomes the new ultimate. We'll do this with all kinds of pleasures where we don't know the pleasure of communion with God, and so we pursue all kinds of other pleasures as the ultimate thing, the ignorance of God produces wrong passions. Something always fills that void. But he says it was our former ignorance. Now we know Jesus. And so we're called to use these active minds to constantly remind ourselves of the glories of the gospel and all that he's done for us so that those old passions are replaced with a new and a better one. And then it allows all the other desires that are in our lives either to be dismissed completely because they were sinful or put into their right place in our lives because they're good, just not meant to be God. Knowing God and his goodness and his gospel is the strongest weapon that we have against sinful desires. And so often we, we strive to live our holy lives and we try to do it just on the basis of rules. Like we say, here are the rules. Here are the things I should do. Here are the things I shouldn't do. And when all I need to do is make effort in those categories and that will allow me to live the holy life that I want. But I think we've all experienced that and, it, and it's kind of like the New Year's resolution where we make our commitments, we're going to do this thing, we're not going to do this other thing and it inevitably wears off really quickly. We've got all those standards, we've got those boundaries, but we lose the willpower and eventually we're not following those standards anymore. 
And there's a good place in the Christian life for rules and laws to, to guide us, but ultimately they are a bad long-term motivator. In the 1800s, Thomas Chalmers wrote a short book or sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And, and the central argument in that book is that the best way to drive out a bad desire is not just to try real hard not to do that bad thing, but to replace it with a better desire. He said that our hearts are always going to have something that they're laying hold of. Our hearts always scan for something to, to, to be desiring right now. Every heart has a pursuit. Something's captured the attention of every single heart, and we sin because we believe that what we are pursuing offers us joy and satisfaction and peace at a greater level than Jesus does. And we might try to make rules to keep our hearts from sinning, but those desires just end up being way too strong. So we need a new affection to, to drive out those, those old affections. In Greek mythology, uh, Odysseus was a great sailor, um, but out there on the ocean, the great enemy of the sailors was the, the sirens, and they were the, the pretty mermaid-looking women, or sometimes they would look like half woman, half bird, and what made them enemies is they would be off on the island of the sirens, and they would sing so beautifully that if you heard their songs um, and you were sailing by, you would jump off the ship and swim over to that island to be near them where they would eat you, and so... It was a bad day, and so you, you, you were almost defenseless against these sirens as you sailed by. And for Odysseus, he had to be able to listen to the gods so that he could navigate the ship, so he had to keep his ears open he, and, and had to find some way to resist the cry of the sirens. So he had all the people on the deck of his ship put wax in their ears so that they wouldn't hear their singing, and then they had, he had them tie him to the mast of the ship so that when they sailed by, he could still hear so that he could navigate the ship, but he was restrained from doing the thing that he wanted to do, which was jump off the ship and go over to the island of the sirens, and that's how they made it by, by, by restraint and plugging their ears. Now, there's another sailor, Orpheus, and he was out on an expedition with Jason and the Argonauts, and they start to sail past the island of the sirens, and they hear them singing, and he has a totally different strategy. Orpheus was the most skilled of the musicians, and so he gets out his lyre, and he starts to play music that's more beautiful than the music that the sirens are producing. He drowns them out with his better music. And so everybody on the deck of his ship, nobody's got ears plugged, nobody's tied to a mast. They're able to make it past the island of the sirens because they're allured by superior music. And we, as Christians, know Christ. And so often we can try to restrain ourselves from sin with force the force of the law, or we can just say, I'm just never going to be anywhere where I might be tempted, and so we kind of stop our ears in that way. But ultimately, we can't maintain any of that. The one thing that helps us to pursue holiness in the long run and really shed old desires is, is recognizing that the gospel is superior music, is hearing Jesus as better than anything that our sin offers. It's recognizing that, that those temptations that are out there are not better than what we have in Christ. What we have in Christ is better, and then we're doing the things that we want to do because we're stoking our wants in all the right ways with the hope that we have in Christ. Now, don't let any of this make it sound like this is easier than it comes without effort. D.A. Carson said this. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness or prayer obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. 
We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. So pursuing holiness of life, it's not a process of legalistic rule-keeping and strapping ourselves to the mast, but we do need to gird up the loins of our minds and expect that it's going to be an active process driven by grace-driven effort. We, we do need to work at keeping our hopes fixed on Jesus. We do need to work at making sure that our hearts are believing the gospel and putting in front of ourselves the, the better music than anything that sin offers us. And if we stop putting those things in front of ourselves through scripture reading and prayer and gathering with the church, we're, we're going to miss out on so much of the grace that could be ours to be able to resist sin and fight temptation and live holy lives. So he says, prepare your mind for action. Get, get ready and live a holy life. So what's that? And there are two major facets of holiness. One is, is purity, um, morality, that, that we strive to keep our lives pure by repenting of sin, striving for obedience, practicing Christian disciplines like prayer and Bible study and worship so that we can stoke our hopes in the right place so that our lives look very differently. Uh, we, we're called to live different lives because we're Christians. We, we're called to stoke our hopes on Jesus so that we live by different values, we live by different laws, we, we fight sin, we don't do what God's called us not to do. That, that's all an aspect of holiness. And then the other facet of holiness is separation or otherness, which means that we expect in our lives to be very different people from those who don't know the Lord. I mean, he says it right there. He says there's a former ignorance. Um, before we didn't know the Lord and it gave rise to certain passions, now we know the Lord, so we should expect things to be different. In the past, we were ignorant of the Lord and we were driven by all the same things as other people around us, so we don't look down on them. We, we understand where they are. We've been there. But knowing the Lord makes a huge difference. And we shouldn't expect the faith that we hold or the lives that we lead to be popular, to be understood, by those who don't claim to know Christ. We should strive to live pure lives and we should fully expect that they'll be very different lives. And in all of it, we actively set our hopes on the grace that's coming. So we're called to be holy and also we're called to live with high regard for God. Verse 17, we'll read uh, 17 to 21 again. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." There's a lot to say about this section here, but there are two main reassuring truths in this. One in verse 17 is that God is our Father. And then the other in verse 19 is that we've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. And both of these things should comfort us. Both of these things should be things that stoke our hopes, that, that get our hearts engaged in the right place. I mean, first of all, that when we're praying to God, we're praying to a Father. Remember back in verse 3, Peter had said that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. We've been born, and the Father in that process is God. So we pray to him like he's the Father that he is. 
We're praying to someone who knew us from the beginning, someone who cares, who wants our best like good fathers do. We're praying to someone who wants to see us thrive, who wants to see us be the best us. See, that, that's what fathers do. And so we're praying to someone who only wants and works good for us. He also says in verse 18 that we've been ransomed. So not only is, our, is God our father, but also he's a father who paid a high price for us. It's a higher price than silver or gold, verse 18. He paid our ransom in the death of his son, verse 19. And it was according to his plan from eternity past in verse 20. And so those are reasons to hope. Those are reasons to hope in the future grace that we'll be receiving from God. He's our father. Of course he wants the best for us. He's already demonstrated his love for us in sending his son and paying that high price for us. So that's all hope stoking. But then you have this weird thing in verse 17 where he says, in, because of all this, conduct yourselves with fear. Now that seems strange in the middle of all of it. Everything else here is very hope-giving. Everything else is, is comforting. But then he says, conduct yourselves with fear knowing that you were ransomed. And what this probably means is to fear treating the ransom that was paid for us like it's a small thing. I mean, imagine a scenario where you're, you're a teenager and you start hanging out with some bad friends. You, you go out with your friends. You're getting into terrible situations with some, some rough people. One thing leads to another and you get kidnapped. I shorten the story, but you're, you're, you're kidnapped. You're captured somewhere. You, you made a million bad decisions that led you to the darkest possible place where you're being held captive and they're demanding a ransom from your parents. So they call your parents and they ask for a million dollars. And your parents break the bank to pay your ransom. They sell everything they have. They, they borrow money from family and friends. They take out loans. They do everything they can to pay your ransom and they show up with the briefcase. They drop it in the right place and you're free and you come home. But in the months following, instead of relief and rejoicing and thankfulness that they've done so much for you, you're completely ungrateful. You're complaining about dinner at home. It's no fun here. Mom and dad don't want me to go out with those same friends anymore. They're, they're keeping me from, from that life I was living. This whole thing stinks. What he's saying here is that we should fear that. We should fear treating the ransom like it was no big deal. When God is our father, did far more than, than give us silver or gold, verse 18. He sent his son. Jesus shed his blood and died for us. He says, so conduct yourself with fear, knowing that you were ransomed. Fear living in a way that disregards the high price that was paid for you. Fear living in any way that, that takes your eyes off the sacrifice that was made. Remember what it was like when you were captured. Remember what it was like when you wandered from God and fear ever going back to that. And so Christians here within the faith, yeah, there, there are commands. Yeah, we're called to pursue holiness at times when we don't want to be holy. There, there are pleasures and thrills that are to be had in sin, and the scripture admits that. But remember the cost that God paid to redeem you. Don't disregard that ransom. Instead, set your hope fully on the grace to become when Jesus is revealed. And one of the important tools that God's given us to, to recenter our hopes on Jesus is the Lord's Supper that we'll take in a couple minutes here. And this is an observance that preaches the gospel. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take the supper, we're proclaiming the death of Jesus. Everyone who takes this says that, yeah, I was captured by sin. But then God sent his son as a ransom. Jesus came and died, and he, he paid the whole price. I couldn't get myself out of it. I was trapped. I was under God's wrath. I was awaiting sentencing. But then Jesus came and gave himself on the cross so that I could live and so that I could be freed. Even though I deserve to have my blood spilled for sin, the blood of Jesus was spilled. And so when we take this supper, we're saying, I am a sinner in need of a savior, and Jesus is that savior. We take this confessing our known sin, saying that, that my only hope is in Christ. And so if today, if you're not saying those things, if you're saying I don't yet believe in Jesus, or if you're saying I've got sin that I'm not willing to confess and let go of, then, then we would ask you not to take this supper with us. But for those of you who came in today struggling, knowing that there was sin this week, with a lot to confess, a lot to unload, unload it where God's called us to unload it, at the feet of Jesus. Believe that the ransom was completely paid for us. And even if you struggled, even if you sinned, even if you failed, confess that to him, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess to him. Leave it at his feet and take that supper, not because you've been worthy of it through your own good works, but take that supper recognizing this is just preaching the truth of the gospel, that my ransom has been paid, that I fell short, but Jesus is enough for me. Jesus paid it for me. His body was torn. His blood was shed so that I could be forgiven. And then you take it in hope and enjoy, stoking your hope that God is so good, he's so for me, that he sent his son. So during the next couple songs, you're welcome to, to pray and confess your sins. And as you've trusted in the Lord, if you've received him as your savior, if you've become a Christian, then we would encourage you to take that supper celebrating the gospel um, that, that has been delivered to us that changes everything in our lives. But let's pray. Well, Father, as we hear this word today, we confess that we know we've fallen short. We've placed our hopes in the wrong places, in, in achievements in this life, in things getting better, in our experiences. And so often we end up frustrated and angry because we hope in all the things that you warned us not to hope in, and it didn't work out. But Jesus, we thank you that, that as our substitute, you hoped perfectly in your Father. You followed your Father in perfect holiness all the way to the cross. You never veered for, from your hope and the joy that was set before you. Thank you that on that cross, you fully paid our ransom. You fully paid for our misplaced hopes. And if you've given us the gift of faith, that means that you've credited us with your perfect faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you drive this truth home to our hearts. We pray that you would make us confident in your goodness to us, Give us confidence that you're a good father. Give us confidence in your control and in your plan, in your guarantees. 
Stoke our hopes in the gospel so that we can live in this frustrating world with a mountain of hope in Christ. Drive that gospel into every room of our lives so that we can live holy lives in reverence and awe of you. Help us to increasingly see the connections between what you've done for us and how our lives are to be lived and help us to do so with joy. Not because we're restrained, but because we're singing the superior song of Jesus, because we're hearing the superior music, because what we have in Christ is so much better than anything that we had before. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.